Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 19. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I am very excited to introduce my special guest today, David Madeira. David, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I'm on a motorcycle, Mark, so no buckles today, but I'm ready to ride. All right, maybe just your helmet, huh? There you go. You bet. (laughs) Okay. David Madeira is not your typical sit-behind-the-desk CEO. He has served as the president and CEO of LeMay, America's Car Museum, since 2002. David has been on some amazing adventures, having ridden his motorcycle across 25 countries from Spain to Nepal. His career as a fundraiser in the educational field is long and impressive, and after learning that the owners of the world's largest car collection were trying to create a museum around their automotive treasures, David jumped into action and spent years helping develop what has become a spectacular car museum located in Tacoma, Washington. It is a legacy to the late Harold LeMay, along with his wife, Nancy, who built an incredible collection of cars. The museum opened in 2012 with David at the helm, leading a dedicated team who cares for the collection. That's when David's not riding his motorcycle through Brazil or Peru. So David, I've told our listeners a little about you, so take some time and share some more about your history, your career, the museum, of course, and your passion for automobiles. Well, uh, it was a nice introduction, uh, Mark. Uh, I grew up on the East Coast in the 50s and 60s, and uh, like your own orientation, the first cars I fell in love with were British sports cars. I was seven years old when uh, the teenager across the street came came home with a 57 MGA convertible, black, red interior, and I'd go over there every morning and watch him while he'd wash that thing and polish it and he gave me rides, and I fell in love with cars then. The first sports car I ever rode in was an MGA. I was one year old. No kidding. Yeah. And your dad had the TC. My dad had the TC, but the MGA was a friend of ours. I just thought I'd share that since we both started with MGAs. But go on, please. Well, I spent most of my life, in, I got a law degree and spent most of my life in higher education raising money and as a consultant, strategic planning and all, and always loosely related to cars and motorcycles, but never part of my vocation. And then I, as uh, as you pointed out, I, I was actually flying one day out of Boston and picked up the Wall Street Journal, and here's this story about this guy, Harold LeMay, having died with 3,000-plus automobiles. And I could tell they needed someone, a family in the city, to wanted someone to lead an effort, and I was kind of bored. I was making good money, but I was bored, and I went home, and I said, hey, cars are fun. Puget sounds beautiful. This sounds like something that's a challenge, and uh, I think they need somebody, and I checked it out, and long story short, we just picked up and moved out here. There was $30,000 in the bank when we started. There was no plan and a little family board. That was the beginning of a great adventure. Little did you know what kind of challenge lay ahead of you. (laughs) You're so right. (laughs) Right, going into a a major recession and uh, all the different parts. Tell us a little bit about about that journey. You know, it's probably the biggest challenge I ever had. I raised a billion dollars, a group of us did, for the University of Illinois. 
back in the 90s. Uh, but when you think about raising money, you know, an institution like that has 400,000 alumni and, you know, a medical school and people believe in education and all that. And so it's relatively easy for a college or a church or a, a Red Cross, uh, a do-good organization to raise money. But if you're going to go out and ask people, hey, why don't you give money to support a rich lady's car collection? That's a little bit different. So that was a huge challenge. And particularly when the recession hit, we were about $5 million away from being able to break ground. And I, I didn't think we'd make it through. But the reason we did uh, was early on I, in the interview, I had said to the LeMay's family when they asked me, would you do a feasibility study for this project, which is what I did in my career, I said, no, save your money. Don't, with all due respect, don't pay me or any consultant a lot of money to tell you what I can tell you today and that that's, this project is not feasible. And they, you know, yeah, what, what are you doing here then? So it's not feasible if it's about you. If it's a vanity project like most car museums, and I don't mean that unkindly, but if it's about Ralph Lauren or Bob Peterson or Harold LeMay or anybody else, ultimately, a rich person should take care of their own cars. Ultimately, most people won't even remember who those people are. Sad truth, there are higher things on their priority list. I said, but if you want to make this about more than you, while honoring your legacy, we can do that. And in our case, it was changing the name to LeMay America's Car Museum instead of the Harold LeMay Museum and saying, okay, Harold was a great person representative of our love affair with a car on spades, you know. And what he did was he collected America's automotive history. So let's build on that and let's focus on your experience, Mark, and your listeners and mine. What's our experience with the automobile? Let's make it about America and that. That proved to be the formula that allowed us to get people to support a vision uh, that finally got it done. Well, a wonderful approach. Genius in so many ways, because as I saw that project develop, because I live up here in the Northwest and was involved with the project with you from the beginning, and even before you came on board with the LeMay family, yeah, that was always the head-scratcher for me. Well, how are you going to get people to rally behind this? It is wonderful, wonderful family, wonderful collection. Yeah. So the positioning was great, and it seems like it worked out pretty darn good because you're sitting in a beautiful building there, and you have all sorts of visitors come to see the museum all the time and great events, and everything's come together, but uh, a whole lot of work. <laughs> well, you're right. You were there from the beginning, and probably one of the first people I met in the project and and uh, and one of the first sponsors of the project. Yeah, it was a, a great long battle, and there were many times I must say that I went, I don't see how they're going to do this. It just seems so difficult. But you did it, and kudos to you and, and the enormous amount of help that you had with the team there and all the people that rallied behind it. And, of yeah. course, the LeMay family for everything that they gave um, yeah. in so many ways. So it was spectacular. So, well, thanks for sharing that journey. That was really wonderful. As we continue on your journey, David, I'd like to start with a success quote, a saying that's been instrumental in forming your success. It's a great way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So, David, take the wheel. Actually, my wife, during uh, the early years of this and some of the hard times of this, gave me a card, a postcard with a picture of a, um, a kid 
Actually, you probably can't see it, but a kid in a soapbox derby car, and he's being launched into the air. Oh, I do see that, yes. <laughs> and it says, uh, life is, it's a Helen Keller, the uh, author and all. Helen Keller said, life is either a great adventure or nothing at all. Mm. And quite frankly, that's why I love to live my life. That's the way, and I used that word earlier, uh, describing this project. When we came out here, it was, we didn't have a clue. We said, okay, there's a great idea, but let's go pursue this adventure. We didn't know where it would go, but look what it resulted in. And, you know, it was a total shift for me. I wasn't immersed in the car world in a professional way. I didn't know anything. But I really do believe that if we pursue life with the spirit of adventure and stay awake to the opportunities, and then when they're there, grab them, you're going to get a lot a lot more done. When I was really discouraged on this project, Rod Alberts, who's the head of the Detroit Auto Show, a good friend of mine, North American International Auto Show, said to me, well, you might not make it. He said, but you know what? You got up to bat. And he said, you know, you get up to bat and you're at least in the game. Absolutely. So yeah, maybe that's another one. You got to get up to bat. Got to get up to bat. That's for sure. Well, you certainly hit a home run with this one. That's that's very obvious to me. Are there some other ways that you've incorporated that success quote into your life? You know, I, I gave a little bit of an introduction about your amazing motorcycle trips. I mean, obviously, the spice for life to jump on a bike and ride across Europe and parts of Europe and South America. Maybe you could share a little bit more about how you've taken that quote and wrapped it around your passion for automobiles and motorcycles. It does apply in that... Um flying out of El Paso, Texas, when I was consulting at the University of Texas, I picked up a Rob report that somebody left. There was a story about a, a motorcycle trip across Morocco, and I read it, and I thought, oh, man, i got to do that. The byline said it's Bert Richmond from Chicago, Illinois. Well, I lived near Chicago, so I got home, and I call, picked up the phone, and I called him. And I said, can we have lunch? And he said, Sure which, as you know, is rare. We're all busy. Somebody calls you in the day and says, you want to have lunch? And it's like, oh, really? Good luck. <laughs> Good luck. Bert didn't hesitate. And I went into Chicago. I had lunch with him and great conversation. And I said, where are you going next? He said, Tibet to Nepal. No one's ever done it. I've got the permit. There's no road. And I said, I'm going. Wow. He didn't know me, but we talked more. And he said, okay, you're going. And, you know, the next year, year 2000, we motorcycled from Lhasa, Tibet, over the Himalayas, 18,000 feet to um, Kathmandu. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was unbelievable. And it was life-changing, you know. And since then, I've been on, as, as you noted, I've been on over 25 countries on a motorcycle. And next year, we go back. I, I keep going back. And we'll ride out of India up by Kashmir, you know, up by the border of Pakistan and and we'll go to a place called Ladakh, which is the highest mountain pass in the world. And I, I'm just dying. I'm, I want to go now. I'm, you know, totally. So how do I apply it? I don't know. I just think that I, you got to be present. You got to think. I've got two, uh, two mugs on my desk. <laughs> One says, "Dream big." <laughs> and so we did that. And I actually gave it to my staff. You know, as we were struggling through this thing. And then the week after we opened, I handed them another one that says, make it happen. Okay, <laughs> we built this thing. Now, you, you know, you really got to get to work. So I, I think that we're 
you know, my approach is it's a big adventure. Pursue that big dream. And then, you know, then, okay, then you, you have to take, you know, I have to take responsibility to make it happen. Sure. Well, that's wonderful. That was one heck of a lunch. Yeah. It totally changed my life. Amazing what one lunch or one meeting with somebody can do to somebody. So maybe we need to have you back on and when you come back and talk a little bit about some motorcycle adventures, you could do a movie like you and McGregor. (laughs) Oh, man, I'd love to do that. I'd love to go ride with him across the world. Wouldn't that be fun? I think a lot of us would. Well, I'd be happy to, you know, if it's not boring, I'd be, I got lots of motorcycle stories. I'd be happy to do that sometime, Mark, in the future. Well, that'd be fun. Would you share with us a story that instigated your passion for cars? Tell us that pivotal moment in your life when you really knew you were, let's say, a motorcycle guy. <laughs> well, you know, I touched on the 57 MGA, and about the same era, my dad had a beautiful 55 Ford, must have been a Fairlane, two-door coupe, aqua blue and white, like all the cars were funny colors back then. And we, my brother and he and I piled in and went on a long road trip to Maine, you know, camping. And we kept getting Dad to go faster and faster. And, and you know, the speedometers are inaccurate, and that thing was reading 100, but there's no way that car could do 100 miles an hour. I think it had a max of 87, but, but my brother and I were convinced we'd gone 100 miles an hour. And that time with our dad, like you've talked to me about your time with your dad, traveling with him in the car really got me into cars and and his dad had always had a love of Buicks and were lots of photos and stories of road trips which is what really got me is road trips and automobiles and so we did a lot of those family vacations by by car across the country six weeks and then I didn't have a lot of money and um, as a young teenager and you know the motorcycle craze hit I had a friend who lived with us for a while, a college kid who had a um, early 60s, it was probably a 65 um, Triumph Bonneville, and I just, it was so sexy, and I was so jealous, you know, and I think that really hooked me on the motorcycles. I had about $700, and I found a 1969 Honda CL350 Street Scrambler, they called it, you could go off-road. And I bought it, began to beat that up in the woods, and then rode it to college, you know, a thousand miles to college on that little 350. Wow. I did that trip three times. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, that hooked me. That's awesome. Well, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. David, what I want to do now is take a look on the roads that you've driven down and really crawl under the hood, get our hands a little dirty, and I'd like you to share a huge challenge, maybe even a big failure in your life that really pushed you to a breaking point, and there. There were probably many with that museum, I'm guessing. But more importantly, share with our listeners what you did and how you overcame that situation. Well, here, certainly, uh, we had many dark moments. And there there were many times I just flat out wanted to quit. You know, I just thought, there's too many obstacles. Reached a point here where the, there was a city manager who just threw every obstacle in our way because he didn't think we would make it. You know, I don't mind talking about him because he's since been run out of town. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. <laughs> but you know, we were so close, and we were trying to get the financing done, and it, we worked real hard uh, with U.S. Bank, and we got some water called New Market Tax Credits that we actually could 
buy from the federal government and um, tax credits. So, so we're working hard on all these things. But the city manager here um, at the time, unlike the original ones in this city who really wanted to make this happen, and the city did stay with us, so this is not a knock on the city. This city manager, um, he didn't think we were going to make it, I think. And he also had a parking problem at the dome. And if we built, and he hadn't solved it because he thought we would never make it. And he hadn't bothered to find an alternative for the parking that was being misplaced by our building on those former parking lots. He began to throw obstacles in our way that wouldn't give us the proper permits, wouldn't let us keep going forward. And that one time I had gone into him and his staff, and I had another witness with me, and I laid out some arrangements for him that would allow this project to go forward. And we had 12 points of agreement that were written down. We shook hands, and um, and I walked out, and I, the document was finished. I finished the document, signed it, sent it back, and he never signed it. And I learned later that you know he said to his staff, "I'm not signing that." You know, as soon as I walked out the door, he said it. In spite of this agreeable agreement and handshake, and our our financing was going to collapse. I was trying always to do the to negotiate and to be fair and not to blow things up. Uh, but I was down in Mexico and I realized the project was going to die. It was just before Christmas. And I uh, picked up the phone and I called C.R. Roberts at the News Tribune. And he interviewed me about the project. And I just laid it out in the open. Uh, this project that so many people in this community had given to, uh, including citizens who were giving us the land, you know, was going to be stopped by this guy because of his dirty dealings. And man, that hit the paper. My wife was so shocked. And she said, how can you do that? How can you talk like that? I'm going to be so embarrassed. You're going to be embarrassed. And I got trashed a little bit by the paper for being a too tough, hard talking and all. But the paper and its editorial had to conclude that I was right on the facts and had to state it. And he crumpled, and the approvals came through, and, and the project went forward. And it came down to being willing to stand up and go public and fight. <sighs> yeah, I'll tell you, I mean, I really didn't know how we were going to get through that thing, but we did. And it goes back to my, um, you know, when I say make it happen, I, I think you try to do everything you can right, and you work really hard, and you have to be persistent. You know, you don't quit. Maybe, you know, that's maybe the good and the bad. I, I believe all of our strengths are also our weaknesses. So, you know, I'm stubborn and I'm persistent. And that's probably good and it's probably also bad sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for doing that. The whole community appreciates that. I, I do remember that bold move and sometimes it takes a bold move to make a bold yeah. thing happen. So that's awesome. So I'm not well-liked by everybody, but that's okay. <laughs> I don't think anybody is, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. David, let's shift gears here and go to the other end of the spectrum and share a story when you had an aha moment. Uh, maybe it's with the LeMay Museum or in your career, a time when you realized that your idea and concept was really going to make it. And tell us the steps you took to turn that aha moment into a success. The story you just told would be a great one, but I'm sure there's many more. <laughs> well, I think that I also mentioned what I, I think is the biggest aha I had um, when I came out here to interview and I told you I was in that interview session and they asked me if I'd do a feasibility study. 
you know, the answer that I would normally give and a consultant would normally give is, sure, I'd be happy to do a feasibility study for you. It's going to cost you X, you know. Right. Um, I was at a stage in life, Mark, uh, where, you know, I just really wanted to do something and do something new, making a big shift. I think I could just be honest. And it just just hit me with, I don't have to just approach this like a professional trying to get a job. I could just say, ah, and I, I hadn't thought this thing through. It was my first time out there. I just thought, hey, this is so obvious to me. If this is a vanity project, it's not worth doing. I wouldn't support it. You wouldn't support it. Who would support it, you know? And it was, uh-huh. No, no, no. What's here is all about America. This thing's got juice. And felt it. And it, that is so right, because when you look then, you know, we've got major corporations from all around this country that have given us millions of dollars. What corporation gives some rich lady money for a car collection? You know, we, so we caught that. And that that was a real aha moment. I had another one recently where, you know, you build the building and then you've got to operate. And so how do you distinguish yourself from others and and there's lots here in the way we built this that does in terms of the show field and changing exhibits and things that don't have anything to do with the original collection you know we're, we're changing all the time but the big one is goes back to that thing about the importance of having a purpose and it slowly dawned on me that you know our tax exempt status is a result of our being an educational institution that's how museums get it Sure, we have the K through 12 programs for kids in the community, and that's great. But if we really want people to keep supporting this place, why? You know, why should they? If they're not a car enthusiast only. And then I thought, wow, uh, working with McKeel Haggerty, and we we've brought in this year with a former collectors foundation, and the aha was. We need to be at the center of a movement in this country to preserve the skills and the knowledge about the preservation and restoration of these old cars. Everybody's concerned about the guys, you know, who are the professional restorers are dying or, you know, or they're aging and the skills are being lost. The guys who built those cars are dying or dead. The schools aren't doing a good job with vocational education. They're saying everybody's got to have a liberal arts degree, and that's baloney. You know, you can outsource your customer call representative, but how do you outsource a plumber? You know, and we, we don't treat the trades with respect. So working with McKeel, we said, let's launch the Haggerty Education Program at America's Car Museum, and we now, have, and we've hired a director, and we're now... Um, you know, seeking in a small way, but hopefully people will get behind it, creating that movement where we say, all right, we're going to give support to organizations which provide those skills to kids who want careers. We're going to give scholarships. We do give scholarships to kids who want those full-time jobs. And now we've created our first apprenticeship where a McPherson grad is going to, it'd be a good interview for you in the fall, is going to work in a shop in Pennsylvania full-time with a master, you know, so he's got his degree. Now he goes and he gets a stipend, not a salary, a stipend, and it's a year of formal work with one of these mat in a master's shop. And I'm totally excited by it because I think it it's aha that 
it makes us serious like no other car museum in this country in, in a way that will have a big impact. And if we can do that, we're going to be bigger yet by doing good. You know, so you can hear I'm getting jazzed about it. Oh yeah, no, that is absolutely spectacular. That's very very exciting, and it's got to get a lot of people fired up and. I know McKeel, in fact, I'll be interviewing him tomorrow. So um, okay. maybe we'll talk a little bit about that that at that uh, interview. Oh, so yeah, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Well, thanks for sharing that. Great aha moments, absolutely. Let's have a little fun. Talk a little bit about your first car. It may have been a motorcycle we, that you'd like to talk about. That'd be fine, too. But I'd like to hear what kind of fun did you have with that? First of all, what was it? What kind of adventures, stories, some things that really stick in your mind? Well, the first one was that 69 Honda CL350, and, you know, as I, it was my commute. It was my commute to work, and it was in the summers uh, when I was uh, senior. Um, actually, just when I got that one, it was uh, my right at my first year of college. I spent a lot of summer nights with a couple of guys just ripping into the backcountry, you know, following power lines and stuff so ill-equipped for it, and those bikes so much heavier than what a dirt bike is today, just thrashing it around. And it was so much fun, you know. And then we'd go drink beer and eat clams, you know, and go home. And um, it was three guys having a ball, uh, very physical uh, adventure. And and then I took that bike and I rode it to college. And, I, and I'll never forget, you know, I was in my army jacket and blue jeans and you know, which is not really good riding gear, but nobody had good riding gear. Fry boots, long hair, threw a backpack on the bike and headed off for school 1,100 miles away. I got to tell you, I was, that morning when I left, I was nervous. I thought, you know, what am I doing? I'm all by myself. I'm just heading out here. I'm not a great mechanic. And I'm, you know, this is a little bike. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. (laughs) And, you know, it was three days, and it was great. And then we turned around, and we rode it back. And I was with a guy who looked like George Custer the next summer. And he's on his uh, Triumph, and I'm on the Honda. And he breaks down outside of Laporte, Indiana. It's night. We find a farm, and we roll the bike into the barn. And and uh, he gets on the back of my bike. So it's two guys on a Honda 350. We ride into it. Purple Martin gas station in Laporte, Indiana, where there's a guy that Ted starts talking to who's got a uh, motorcycle gang colors on the Nighthawks of Laporte in Michigan City. And I'm and I'm going, oh, my God, what's he doing? Next thing I know, this guy's invited us to stay with him. So Ted says yes, and I meekly go along, and we ride, you know, across the tracks. I'm hearing Johnny Rivers singing the poor side of town in my head. And, <laughs> And we pull into this little dump with no screens, you know, windows open, no screens. I don't know how many motorcycles in the front lawn, all Harleys, and all these guys out in their gang colors drinking beer and looking at us on a Honda, two guys. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, and I'm going, "Uh uh-oh. And we come in the front door, and he, you know, they kind of look at us, and, and this guy was called Teach. I'm thinking, what does teach mean, you know? And or his shirt said the teacher. I thought, crap, he's some kind of enforcer. <laughs> oh, no. You know, that's going through my 19-year-old head. So he introduces us to Ruben, this big 300-pound gang leader. And he says, okay, 
Want a beer? Yep. Sure I do. Warm Blatt's beer, you know, terrible stuff. And they give us the one bed in the place. And it's a mattress on bare springs, no sheets, no nothing. And I remember lying there on my back all night in my clothes and my jacket with my eyes wide open, you know, scared out of my mind. Waiting to die. <laughs> yeah. And the next morning they got a pickup truck and they took us to uh, a Harley shop, the only shop around in town, picked up the bike, got his bike fixed. We sat there all day and, and it we go over then back to the gas station to say goodbye to Teach and thank him. And we're fueling up. And I said to him, so I got two questions for you. One is, you know, why'd you help us out? You're, you know, totally different. He goes, we're bikers, man. Bikers stick together. And then where'd you get the name Teach? And he goes, oh, I'm studying for my master's degree in in uh, childhood education <laughs> at Bowling Green State University. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my gosh. All my stereotypes away. It was a great, great trip. That's a great story. Oh, what fun. What fun. <laughs> Is there a project you're working on right now that really has you fired up and excited? Yeah. I am. Uh, I keep thinking I'm near the completion of a restoration of a 1973 Norton Commando 850 um, cc motorcycle. Oh wow. Nortons are so sexy. This is black, you know, it's just classic. It's black with the gold Norton lettering and it sounds so good. It'll be it'll be I keep thinking it's 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 getting some engine work done right now and I keep thinking it's ready and it's not quite but it'll be here before summer's done so i'll be riding it this summer i can't wait well good can't wait to see that isn't there a a motorcycle show coming up this summer at the museum yeah last weekend in august um draws draws some great judges and journalists and bikes from all over the country there'll be you know 200 some motorcycles here and uh it's a great time wonderful we'll look forward to that Uh, hopefully that bike will be done by then yep we'll see (laughs) (laughs) i hope so What's your favorite way to spend time in the garage with cars or bikes? Is it you like wrenching on them, you like cleaning them, or is it just riding? I look forward to retirement where I can wrench more like I did. You know, on those old bikes, when you, you and I were young, you you could wrench on an MG or or uh, a motorcycle. And, and some of the stuff today, it's just so hopeless. And the equipment you need, you know, expensive and, and all. But I look forward to getting back into wrenching. I, I do love to care for my bikes and my Porsche and, you know, and putter around them, tinker where I can and, and keep them clean and treating, treat them lovingly. But the thing I do more than anything else is, is uh, rides and drives and, you know, vintage rallies and cars and stuff like that. Yeah. Ride, baby, ride. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. All right, David, we're up to what I call the last lap, and this is a series of questions that I'm going to fire off to you, and you're going to give our listeners some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So are you ready to go? Sure. Okay. What is the best automotive advice you've ever received? Automotive advice? Automotive advice. Um, On a motorcycle, keep your eyes up. Keep your eyes up. Absolutely. Yeah, one (laughs) of the first things they teach you at motorcycle school, isn't it? Right. (laughs) Everyone's out to kill you. Can you share one of your personal habits that you believe contributes to your success? Yeah, it's tenacity. You know, we talked about that earlier, but I'm too ornery to quit when I should. And I think, you know, that 
that gets you through um, tough times. That's a great one. Tenacity. You need that for the project you're involved with there. Do you have a resource that you'd like to share with our listeners, maybe a website, suppliers, a restoration shop, someone that you're particularly fond of? People have so many different interests, in, uh, and there's so many good resources. It's hard to identify one automotive resource. Maybe I should say you, Mark, who is oh. <laughs> Endeavor. <laughs> no, seriously, that I hope people pay attention to a guy who's been around a while. But, you know, it's funny. The one I'm going to tell you is not related to automobiles. The best resource I, I have that I go to online is L.L. Bean. They are so true to their word, and they have such good quality in everything they do. And I, w- I know we don't have time, so I won't tell you the stories, but they're phenomenal. And I, I go to them whenever I can. I'll make sure, listeners, we post these up on our show notes page. And uh, I appreciate the kudos to Cars Yeah. Thank you very much. You uh, now that you're on, maybe we'll get some more listeners listening. I so hope. I hope so, too. That's the plan. Uh, is there a book that you've recently read that you'd like to share with our listeners that really has inspired you? You know, my one of my favorite books of all time, I, I haven't read it in the last few years. I've read it a couple of times. It's, it's oddly enough called Modern Times, A History of the 20th Century by a British historian by the name of Paul Johnson. And I love history. And he writes about the entire 20th century so he's talking about the politics, the religion, the science, you know, the military, the economics. He weaves it all together in an unbelievable story. Uh, I don't know how anyone writes like that. Usually someone picks a subject, you know, a discrete subject. He writes about it all. And so you get this sweeping history of the century that we grew up in. It's like a thousand-page read, but it's a phenomenal book. Well, and you're working in an environment there around a whole lot of history as well. So uh, yeah. I think you're uh, having a great time. So we'll make sure we post that book up on the show notes page at Yeah slash David Madeira so people can find that for them. Thanks. Okay, David, we're up to the checkered flag. It's the end of the race. And this is a question that some people have a bit of a challenge with. I like to call it a real doozy. If you could have only one collector car in your garage, something that you couldn't sell to buy other cars with or motorcycles and money was no object what would it be and more importantly why well you know it's the car i have and it's nothing that exotic you mentioned doozy it's nothing like a million dollar duesenberg actually can i say two cars (laughs) well i might let you say two cars since you're sitting in the world's largest car museum the one is, I have a 1983 Porsche 911 SC convertible. First year that the convertible was ever made for the United States anyway. I always loved Porsches. And I love them because of the way they drive and they feel and the experience you have with them. But I also love them because they're, they're bulletproof. They are, you know, they're just so dependable and so much fun. This 83, the reason I like it so much is... It's about as close to a modern car experience as you can get in spite of being 31 years old. It, you know, I still take it on 1,500-mile trips and drive it hard. It never fails me. And, it, and, and I think for all of us, when you have something and you had it for a long time and it doesn't fail you, you love it. And I, I don't care. You know, If I had another million dollars to just go spend it, I wouldn't do it. I just want that car because of 
means to me. It's pretty nice, and I have to say you're the first interviewee I've had that has picked the car they have. So that's pretty spectacular uh, that you choose that. And we have a lot in common. My first convertible was an 84 Porsche Cabriolet, a Visoc edition car. Nice. Yeah, and I really did love that car. When I moved to Pacific Northwest 22 years ago, it was my only daily driver. I couldn't afford another car, so I had to sell it because the thing leaked like crazy when it rained. <laughs> so I ended up buying a coupe, but uh, I always think back to that car. It was a, yeah. a beautiful car. They're fun, aren't they? They are fun. They are They're bulletproof. Really fun. Yeah. Well, David, you've taken us on a great ride today, and I've really enjoyed your stories. I want to thank you for sharing your journey with me and the listeners if you would give us one parting piece of guidance before you drive off into the sunset in that Cabriolet or that Norton, and let our listeners know also what's the best way they can learn more about you and the LeMay Museum. Well, uh, they can certainly learn about the museum at uh, www.lemaymuseum.org. I'd be happy to respond to them if they reach out to us. Uh, they can reach me personally if they want to through that as well. Uh, is find out information about the museum. Yeah, I, I sound like a broken record, but you know, don't don't let life go by. Uh, you know, get in it, go for it. Um, we all fail, and I've I've had some big failures, you know, personally and professionally and everything else. But you got to be in it, as Rod Albert said to me, get up to bat. You know, wonderful, getting up to bat. That's great advice. Thanks for sharing that. Listeners, I want to tell you, you can find everything we talked about today here at carsyad.com slash David Madeira, M-A-D-E-I-R-A. Just go to Cars yeah and look up the show notes page. And I want to say personally, if you're in the Tacoma, Seattle, Northwest area, make a trip to LeMay, America's Car Museum. It is really worth the time. I've been there many times. I was there a few nights ago at the opening for the Mustang event. It is a fabulous experience for everybody, even people that maybe aren't into cars, you'll see something that reminds you of your past and your childhood and will bring up that memory and that inspiration in your heart. I've seen it happen over and over again. So make sure you visit that museum. And thank you, David, for being so generous with your time and your expertise and for sharing your experiences with our listeners. Until we talk again, we'll see you down the road. Sounds good, Mark. Thanks for including us and me, and uh, thanks for your friendship. Look forward to seeing you soon. Be fun. Can't wait to hear about that motorcycle trip. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah!